This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 45. I didn't know what I was going to find, but what ended up happening is I saw that it was universal that all of the people that were effective were good at five particular skill areas. There were no exceptions, JP, everybody across the board. And I thought that was fascinating because it completely blew up the sort of attribute theory that to be a good leader, you have to have a certain personality, come from a certain zip code, look a certain way, go to a certain school. But in fact, what united all these people was a mastery of a set of five skills. Why do some leaders consistently outperform their peers? What is it that differentiates the most effective leaders from the rest? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Well, we're about two months away from what I believe will be one of the best HR events of the year. I'm talking about Mark Efron's Future of HR Workshop, which is taking place in Boston on September 19th. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, then you know that I am super excited about this event. The Future of HR Workshop is limited to only 100 HR leaders, so this will be an opportunity to network, learn from each other, and build new relationships with your peers. It's also a chance to learn from seven world-class CHROs who will be leading highly interactive conversations and workshops. There's still time to reserve your spot, but don't wait much longer. Go to futureofhr2023.com. That's futureofhr2023.com to learn more about this event and the speakers. And with that, my guest this week is David Dotson. David is a Stanford University Graduate School of Business faculty member, where he guides students in tactical execution. He teaches one of the most sought-after courses at Stanford, and in 2023, The Economist listed his course as one of the three hottest courses at Stanford. David's success in the classroom follows a vast experience in the trenches. Beginning as a McKinsey consultant, he left to become a serial entrepreneur, operating six companies as CEO or executive chairman. And he has since served as a board member of more than 40 companies and has been an active investor in over 150 businesses. Dave is with us today to discuss his new book, The Manager's Handbook, The Five Steps to Build a Team, Stay Focused, Make Better Decisions, and Crush Your Competition. I've had the pleasure of reading David's book before our conversation, and I can say it is one of the most pragmatic and actual books I have ever read on being an effective leader. Based on his years of experience and three years of research, David has done an amazing job of distilling the key practices, behaviors, and mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. This conversation and his book is highly recommended for all leaders, not just HR leaders. In my conversation, David and I discussed his research on the five must-have skills from people who get things done, why you should be hiring based on outcomes, not likability, why he believes instant performance feedback is so powerful and how to do it, how the most effective leaders find an additional 80 minutes a day without working longer, why being good at seeking and taking advice is a competitive advantage, and his advice to HR on how to improve the quality of leaders at your company. 
David, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? Great. I'm thrilled to be here. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. I want to start off our interview just talking a little bit about your incredible career. You've invested over 40 businesses. You've been a director in 21 companies. You started two nonprofits, including studentvotes.org. You teach at Stanford. What drives you to achieve so much? I mean, that's an incredible resume. Well, maybe it just means I'm old. I don't know. There is a commonality to all that, which is that I love the idea of organizing and managing people. And so the fact that I've been involved in different companies, that's me managing. And teaching gives me an opportunity to teach management. And also when we have guests in class learning from other great leaders on what they do and what's worked for them. And the nonprofits work, that's just an extension of what I do in the rest of my life. Those are still organizations that need to be led. And they have the same HR challenges as any other business. So the common thread is I love leading, I love managing, and I love helping early leaders be the very best managers they can be. Well, that's really inspiring. And you obviously have a track record of success in doing that, which motivated you to write a manager's handbook. But tell us more about what made you decide this was the time to put this book out there in the world. Well, it just evolved. I didn't set out to write a book, JP. What happened was that as a result of being an investor and on boards, I get asked questions, of course. And I get asked, you know, the same questions over and over again, which is perfectly natural because a lot of this, a lot of the problems that are out there are common. And the same thing was happening in, as a faculty member at Stanford University as I was asked these same questions over and over again. So it occurred to me that the answers that I was giving people on the phone or in person, were always incomplete because it was off the top of my head. So I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to do something better here. I'm going to write out how I feel about these common subjects. Someone who's terminating somebody for the first time or someone who is going to put someone on a development plan for the first time. And I will just send them that, have them read it, and then we'll talk about what's idiosyncratic or specific about their problem. Just to try to raise up the level of advice and guidance that I was giving people. Well, that ended up being kind of a library of white papers. I put it together and sent it out to people who were interested. And they said, this is great that you put it all together. You should write a book. And so I started writing a book. And as I was writing the book, I was thinking about, well, what is the theme of the book? I just want to be a compilation of random white papers. And so I got fascinated with the idea of why are some people, some leaders, some managers, just so much better than others at getting things done and keeping people and motivating teams. What is it out there? So I stepped away from my own personal experience and spent about three years researching what I thought were the most effective managers. And it ranged everything from someone who was running a nonprofit in East Africa of a couple hundred people to Steve Jobs and Sam Walton. Because I, I wanted to, I wanted to do a cross section of leaders and a cross section of industries. I didn't know what I was going to find. But what ended up happening is I saw that it was universal that all of the people that were effective were good at five particular skill areas. There were no exceptions, JP, everybody across the board. And I thought that was fascinating because it completely blew up the sort of attribute theory that to be a good leader, you have to have a certain personality, come from a certain zip code, look a certain way, go to a certain school. But in fact, what united all these people was a mastery of a set of five skills. I was obsessed by this notion, and I wanted to try to get it out there in a way that was not just academically interesting, 
training or a kind of your business beach read, if you will, but was a how-to manual. I wanted to write the book that I wish someone had put in my hands when I was first managing people. So I wrote the manager's handbook. And what I did is each of the five general skill areas, I broke into sub-skills. And within those sub-skills, I said, I'm going to write this chapter in as few words as possible, as simply as possible, as much in a how-to format as possible. So in the, at the end of every chapter, for example, JP, I have I basically have you know six things you have to remember from this chapter, 10 things you have to remember from this chapter. So I even take the notes for the reader so that if they read uh, the chapter on how to do an exit interview and the best practices around exit interviews, and they're going to do an exit interview for the first time, they don't have to reread the chapter. They could just go to that page and look at that one page and look at the notes and go, oh yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, I'm ready to go. Well, I think that is what really did set the book apart for me. There are so many books on leadership that focus on a quality, a characteristic, be empathetic, be passionate, be inspiring. But that's not really how we lead, right? And so what you broke down is a playbook, the actions, the behaviors that lead to great leadership. And I will tell you, David, when I read it, it just came through to me. You know, it was really pragmatic. And that was one reason why I was so excited to have you on the podcast, because I think HR leaders, our managers and people leaders we're supporting don't have a lot of time. They need support and they need a Cliff Notes version of it's about the behaviors. It's not about the intentions. When I was first interested in really into the science of hiring and how to do it well, and, and this is going back maybe 15 years ago, I went to the local bookstore maybe a couple of them. And I bought every single book that looked like a legitimate book on hiring. And it was a big stack. And I told people that I work with, I was the CEO, I'm going to go away for a week and I'm going to go lock myself in a room and read these books. And it was a big stack. And so obviously it represented thousands of pages. And when it was all said and done, I looked at my notes and it was about 20 pages of notes. And I thought to myself, who the heck has time to read 15,000 pages to get 20 pages of really valuable information that's actionable? And that's the theme that I wanted for this book. I don't want people to read this book as a single subject book and say, okay, well, now I just slogged through 300 pages and I know how to interview well. You don't need 300 pages to learn how to do an interview. You need about 20 pages. Well, that approach is so pragmatic and really needed, especially in our world, as busy as we are. And let's talk a little about hiring because, of course, HR leaders are focused on finding great talent, selecting great talent. But you talk about hiring for outcomes. Tell us more about this approach and why it can be a game changer in assessing talent. What we tend to do is we tend to hire based on biases around likability or people that remind us of people that we like or they remind us of ourselves. And so the hiring process is replete with a lot of bias. It's also an area where we have accepted an extraordinarily poor success rate. There was this survey I read, 7,000 managers. So this is a pretty big survey. And the, the managers found that 46% of their hires failed within the first 18 months. A 50%, 50% failure rate. Now, we wouldn't accept that in anything else in our business life. As a result of that acceptance of a high failure rate, it has also given us permission unwittingly to frankly be kind of lazy about how we hire because we can just sort of slough off bad hiring as, oh, well, it was their fault, not ours. 
And the classic example that I like to use, and this will get to why hiring for outcomes is so important, is a story that was told in Malcolm Gladwell's more, most recent book, Talking with Strangers. And he talks about Neville Chamberlain's first encounter with Adolf Hitler. And he, Neville Chamberlain, went to meet with the German chancellor at the time, came back, announced to Britain that this was a person he could do business with. And he cited as a principal reason the way Hitler shook his hand, that he did it with two hands in, a, in a, an, an affectionate way. And he, and he said, he shook my hand in a way that he reserved for only his special friends or special acquaintances, the double handshake. Okay. That is how most people hire. Winston Churchill was one of the few leaders who really understood Adolf Hitler and called it from the beginning. Winston Churchill never met Adolf Hitler. Winston Churchill based his opinion on facts. And that's the difference between, and excuse me, data and facts. And that's the difference between hiring for, for outcome and what I would say is hiring for likability. And if you're going to hire for outcomes, what you think about, you know, a, sort of a classic way to think about it is this. If I said we're hiring a sales, uh, a director of sales, a lot of people would put in there, well, they need 15 year sales experience and they need to have gone to this school and they need, you know, they go through all, all of these th issues like that. And when I would come back and I would say, no, you actually don't want that. You don't care how many years sales experience they have. You don't care what school they went to. You don't care what the prior company they worked for. What you're hiring for is someone who can drive sales by 12%. Isn't that right? I go, yeah, that's right. You see, so to the extent that you're looking at their resume, that you're looking at their, their historical experience is only relevant if you can demonstrate that that will lead to those outcomes. And so you switch it around and instead of saying, well, if I hire someone with a whole lot of experience, I'm sure things will work out. You define what it is that you want, what would make this person a winner. And then you go back and you say, okay, what would be ways that I could find out? So the matrix that I describe in the book, The Manager's Handbook, is you have the outcomes and then you say, how will I know? Well, it's so brilliant because I think you're right. We really hire based on likability. We all think we have a nose for talent if it looks and acts like us. But what you're getting to is the outcome piece. And if the past is our best predictor of future behavior, well, how did you get gross sales 12% in the past? What did you do? Can they replicate that now in this context, in this culture, in this environment is the right question. And I 100% agree that that's where HR is falling down and can do a much better job is aligning those outcomes prior to starting that search. Yes, and then... I don't want to in any way suggest that what somebody did prior to the interview doesn't matter, but it only matters to the extent that it proves the outcomes. And you had mentioned and what you just said, something that, that brings to mind some techniques on how you do this in a way that's simple. So I could say, hey, you need to hire for outcomes and you really want to find someone that can drive those outcomes. And people would nod and say, okay, as they're reading it. But then what's lingering in their mind is, okay, well, it's fine, but how do I do it? I'm not hiring poorly on purpose. And so, for example, I try to give people easy techniques. So one would be when you're looking at someone's experience, you say, what, how, tell me more. Really easy to remember. So what did you do? How did you do it? And tell me more. So if somebody said, I drove sales by 12%, that's the what, say, how did you do it? Most, most sloppy interviewers will say, wow, that's great. Congratulations. And they'll move on to the next question. 
but you say how, and then you tell, tell them more. And then you follow that up with previous peers and plan. So maybe 12% isn't so great because the prior year it was 22%, or maybe compared to their peers, it was twice compared to the peers or it exceeded plan. So now you have to remember just what, how, tell me more and previous peers and plan. You remember those four words and you'll already instantly be in the top 20% of interviewers. You also talk in the book, David, about shifting from a traditional once a year performance management process to what you call, and I love this term, instant performance feedback. Tell us more about this and your six-part framework for driving performance. A good friend of mine, Paul English, he was one of the three co-founders of Kayak, the travel site, one of the early home run web-based solutions. And Paul and I are pretty good friends. And he told me a story about before he even started Kayak, and probably this would have had to happen in order for him to do so well and build Kayak, is he had built a company and sold it to Intuit. And he was negotiating with Larry Ellison, who was then the CEO of Oracle, to buy a small division that Intuit was trying to sell. And he was there with Larry Ellison and with his boss. They had their meeting, walked out to the parking lot. And Paul's boss said, Paul, I want to tell you about something. And he told Paul about something he had said in that interview that he thought was very ineffective. And Paul tells me that story because he said, if my boss didn't feel comfortable telling me that, I would never have been able to improve. If he had waited even a week or so, I would not have been, it wouldn't, the information would not have been fresh and it wouldn't stick with me. And so he said, that is the moment when I realized that the best managers are always on the lookout for coachable moments. They don't collect them and save them for twice a year, once a year. And that idea about saying, if I'm someone's boss or coach, if you will, and I'm on the lookout for coachable moments, and I built a culture where there's not drama around it. I'm just trying to help you be a better, better athlete. I'm trying to help you be a better manager that that's where you really get performance. And that's why I call it instant performance feedback. But it starts with a bedrock of the notion of you know, that Kim Scott just so beautifully describes, which is radical candor, which is where you understand that most of us, you know, if there's two axes, the horizontal axis would be your quiet. And the other end of it would be that you challenge directly. And the vertical axis at the top would be that you care about a person. And the bottom is that you don't really care about people. Well, most of us reside in the upper left-hand quadrant, which is we care personally about somebody, but we're silent. We tell ourselves that we don't give feedback because we, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And we have all these rationales around it. But the truth of the matter is we do it because we want to be liked. That's why we don't do our job. And the notion of radical candor is that if you really care about somebody, you need to challenge them directly because that's what's in their best interest. And if you've established this culture of radical candor, and in the book, I lay out a, a basically step-by-step -step of how you can create a culture of radical candor within your organization very simply. If you have that bedrock and then you have this framework of, I'm always looking for coachable moments, oh my gosh. JP, now you really have a high-performing organization because everybody is working together to try to elevate each other up. Absolutely. You're right that people want to be liked is one of the main reasons we don't give the feedback because it's uncomfortable. But when I think back to my career, the best bosses, the best managers I've ever worked with, best leaders, frankly, gave me feedback in that moment. 
they were brave enough to say, hey, I care about you. Here's how you should do this differently next time. Something to think about. Or even asking after like a client meeting, say, hey, how do you think that went for you? If you gave yourself a score on a one to 10, was that a 10 or was it a seven? You know, and then you talk through that and say, here's what we made that a 10. That's where the learning happens. I think we need more radical candor and we need leaders doing more of this. So I really love this instant performance feedback concept. And I really encourage folks to, to read the book and pick this up and take a look at it. Because I think performance management, feedback giving is something we're always struggling with in HR to get people leaders to do more of. Oh, I was just going to say, and for that same reason, I also describe six steps to giving people feedback. And that may seem that, that it's limiting, but it's actually not. It's, it, it's quite liberating because, and you can do it in conversational form in three or four sentences. But what most people do is, is even if they're radically candid and even if they're giving instant feedback, when they deliver the message, it's muddled. And that's not fair to the other person. So I say, do it in this order, these six steps, and you'll give extraordinarily good feedback. I just wanted to add that, JP. Well, it's a great ad because tools really help us to, to give this kind of feedback because it's uncomfortable. And so that's okay to have that crutch, which at some point you won't need anymore because you'll memorize the framework and it'll become more natural. But initially, you'll need that to start ha- taking that first step. David, the other common skill you mentioned that I think is so important is around managing time. And a point you make on managing time is that managers who get things done never allow the priorities of others to interfere with what's important to them. This is easier said than done, but what advice do you have for leaders on how to better manage their time and priorities? Well, it's so common, right, among managers that we we stare down a busy week and we keep thinking, oh, well, next week will be a little bit better. And if I can just get through the end of this week, I'll get all caught up on the weekend. And next week's never better than the week before. And also, as you move up in the organization, the demands of your time increase. They don't decrease. So I've struggled with that personally. And I've watched other people who really have command of their time. And that was one of the commonalities, as you pointed out, JP, when I was working on this book. So the seminal moment for me was when I was having coffee with this friend of mine, Tom Staggs who at the time was COO of Disney. So he had about 200,000 people reporting to him. And I arrived at coffee a little bit late and he was calm and he told me about the soccer game the night before with his kid. And I finally said, Tom, you have 200,000 people reporting to you and you have the same number of hours in the day as I do. Like, what's going on here? And he explained to me that in addition to having incredible people that worked for him, he was very, very ruthless about how he managed his time which did not mean that he locked himself in a closet away from people, but it meant that he treated each minute as precious as he could and he he used them effectively. And then as I was researching the book, I was realizing that every single effective leader felt that way. And it's so much more important now than before. Back when I started, and this was pre-email, a typical executive received a thousand communications a year. Today, that's up to 30,000. And of course, we know why. And we fool ourselves, but we did not increase collaboration. What we did is we increased the ease at which we can waste each other's time. And that's what happens. And I was visiting with a friend of mine, Professor Michael Porter at Harvard, and I was talking to him about this problem. He said, well, we just actually finished a study. We we picked 27 high-performing CEOs and we followed them around. You can imagine this, JP, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and recorded in 15-minute increments what they did. 
collected 60,000 hours of data. And it just reinforced what Tom had told me is that these 27 high-performing CEOs were ruthless about their time. But when it came time to describe that in the book, what use is that just to say, you know, manage your time well? Because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to make sure that I manage my time poorly today. And I thought it was equally useless to say, buy all these complicated apps and do all these major changes in your work habits because we just revert back to our old habits. So what I did is I distilled a handful of very simple things that will capture a lot more of your time with the minimum amount of disruption to your normal day-to-day habits. So I'll just give you one really simple but very powerful example. If you take every 30-minute meeting, which is a default, and make it 20 minutes, and you take every 60-minute meeting and cut it down to 40 minutes, in a typical calendar, that'll save you 80 minutes a day. It might even be more than that, though, because when you set an appointment and you say the appointment starts at at 110 and ends at 130, people show up on time, they end on time because they assume there's some reason why it's a 20-minute meeting, and there's none of the early chit-chat at the beginning or ending. And so it's not just that, the, that I compressed meeting times and still got the same results, but also those meetings were more effective. I'm only giving you that as an example, JP, to say that in the book, I don't ask you to radically change how you behave. I ask you to wrap your arms around a dozen or so really simple things that you can literally do the next morning. It really goes against the grain a little bit because you're shifting how Microsoft set up with the 30 minutes. And people might ask you, well, why is this meeting only 20 minutes? Do you have a response? What do you think, David, should people say when they ask those kinds of questions? I try, first of all, to be the person to issue the calendar invite. That usually takes care of it. If someone else does the calendar invite first and they set it for 30 minutes, sometimes, yes, it's awkward to reduce it to 20 minutes. And it, it, this, is not, this is not something that has to be absolute. If you can reduce 80% of your half-hour meetings to 20-minute meetings, you've accomplished a lot. So it doesn't have to be 100%. But what it, your question leads into what I think is really fundamental to the book and what I did not discover until I was late in the process, which is that I indeed, I set out to write a book that someone would read to improve their own personal management behavior and their skill set. But what was pointed out to me by coincidence by Michael Porter, who probably the most prolific business writer and business professor in modern history, he said, that's a mistake. And he was helping me with the book and he, he was reading the introduction. He said, David, you've got it all wrong. You've got some good stuff here, but you've written this book like a menu that people can select off of. And instead, what you've done is you've created a unifying theory of execution or a unifying theory of implementation. And they all go together. And they also go together as a team. So why do I say that, JP? I say that because you build your organization around 20-minute meetings. It's not you. It's not the EVP or the vice president on high who says, I, my meetings are 20 minutes, but you guys behave any way you want. When you really transform an organization is when everybody does 20 minute and 40 minute meetings. Now you really are being a manager and you're not just, you're not just an individual performer. And when you've done that, okay, you might have some external meetings. You might have a meeting with a customer that has to be an hour. That's fine. But all of your internal meetings, which represent the bulk of how we spend our time, has been transformed throughout the whole organization. So there's no awkwardness about it. And then they like it too. Because by the way, what's interesting about meetings 
is that we universally have decided that meetings are ineffective. In fact, the average executive spends 23 hours a week in meetings and 50% of them self-report as those meetings are either ineffective or very ineffective. So when you go to your management team and say, we're going to do some things to reduce the amount of time we're in meetings, they're thinking, hallelujah. What about prioritizing? No one sets out to not get things done they want to get done that week. But all of a sudden, especially middle managers, HR leaders, a lot of times the agenda is not set for us. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we're doing someone else's agenda. How, what's your advice for how do you fight through that and still get done what matters? Sure. So I had two epiphanies in my own life that led to me to really study this. One is early in my career as a CEO, I got very frustrated with my organization. I thought, why can't they keep up? And what I realized is that I can ideate and be creative and come up with fantastic ideas on the drive home. But when I turn and deliver it to people and say, hey, let's do this, I forget that in order to do that, you have to hire people. You might have to sign leases. You might have to buy equipment. You might have to enter into contracts. I mean, implementation takes time and ideation is much faster than implementation. So that was the first sort of epiphany that I had, if you will. The, the second was when I was reading a story about Mike Flint. And Mike Flint was, was Warren Buffett's pilot. And Mike Flint had come to Warren Buffett and they'd known each other for many, many years. And he said, I want to do some changes in my life and focus on things that are important. And Warren Buffett said, well, why don't you go away and make a list of all the things you want to do? And he came back the next day, presented the list. And Warren Buffett said, well, what are the five most important things? He said, what are the, he indicated those. And he said, so what are you going to do with the next five? And Mike Flint said, well, I'm not going to do those until I accomplish these first five. And he said, no, those are the things you have to be aware of. And those are the things that you have to be careful not to do. And it's that those are your do not do list. What he meant by that was that prioritization is not about not doing the things that you shouldn't do. Prioritization is a willingness and a recognition that there are things you'll never get to that are really, really great ideas. And you don't do those so that you can get to even the more important things. So now you combine those two and now you're in in a mindset where you say, okay, I understand now about setting and adhering to priorities, but it's still really, really hard. So I put techniques in there. So for example, how Apple and Steve Jobs was relentless, probably the single most effective CEO at forcing an organization to stick to priorities. But he didn't do it by, by just saying, hey, let's all be, uh, let's all just focus on priorities today. He had specific techniques that he used and tactics that he used within Apple to make sure that everybody did that. I articulate those in the book along after harmonizing it with what other great leaders have done. Another example would be how you set bonus plans. Bonus plans are an outstanding way to set and create, to adhere to priorities. Because if you've said to somebody, okay, JP, this is what we're going to work on this quarter, and you're going to be measured in a certain way. Well, if it's part of your bonus plan, you have to be very specific about how you're measuring it. Otherwise, you're not being fair to the person and everybody signs up for it, then when it's part of someone's bonus plan as the manager, you feel a certain pressure not to come in with the the next idea of the day three weeks later, because that's not part of the person's articulated written bonus plan. So just by having a bonus plan in place that talks about subjective goals, that also helps you set and adhere to priorities. The point being, JP, is that it's one thing to just talk a good game, but if you don't have specific techniques and specific tactics and how to do it. You'll just revert back to your old ways. I love the piece on, 
you know, ideation is a lot faster than implementation. Because I think as leaders, we always have big ideas and we can fall in love with those ideas. And then we always underestimate how long it takes our team or ourselves to get those things done. And then that's where you overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah. Right. How do you feel about goal setting, David? What's your approach to that? Because I feel like the annual goal setting, it just doesn't really work anymore and how fast things can shift into priorities in companies. But I'd love your perspective on what you're saying. Well, I ask people to, to just do away the, with the notion of an annual budget. An annual budget and an annual budgeting process tends to be more of a, you know, let's look in the crystal ball and see if we can guess what's going to happen. And we blow it out all in, in financial metrics. And then we tend to go back to doing what we're doing before. I, I suggest a specific process that tends to start if your year ends at the, in January that starts around October that forces the organization through a four-step process of setting what those priorities are. And then what I encourage people to do is to distill it down quite literally on a, you know, postcard size. This is what this, these are our priorities for the year, our priorities for the quarter, and this is my role in it. There's a, a story about a rowing team and they had, I think it was an English rowing team and they had, they were ineffective. They were Olympic team. And so they said, we're only going to do things that make the boat go faster. And they had this expression, will it make the boat go faster? In fact, there's a book on it now. And they ended up, you know, no surprise, they ended up winning a medal, Olympic medal because they got rid of everything that didn't matter if it didn't make the boat go faster. So with the companies that I work with, at the end of the process, the planning process, we have these little lucite cubes and behind it is a, is an image of a rower. Uh, and then it just lists what you're supposed to be working on. And it sits on your desk and you stare at it every day. And you have to ask yourself as you're spending the day, is that the equivalent of, is this going to make the boat go faster? So for example, if someone's priority uh, for the, for the quarter would be to put in a new commission plan, let's say there's three of them and that's one of them. Then they have to ask themselves, if, if, is what I'm doing today, is this, is that helping us create and implement a new commission plan? And if not, I gotta, I gotta, even though it's a great idea, going back to the Mike Flint story, I've got to say no to that or I'm never going to have a great commission plan in place. Well, let's make the boat go faster is a great question. Every organization and leadership team should have a question like that to be the North Star that really defines what we do and do not do as an organization. So thank you for telling us about that story. You also talked about great managers are willing to seek and take advice. And this does seem like simple advice. Sure, all leaders should be great listeners. But why is this so challenging for leaders? And what's your advice on how to do this and be better at it? There's a number of reasons why it's challenging. And that's why I start in the first chapter on why being good at seeking and taking advice gives you an almost an unfair advantage in the marketplace is because so few people do it. And so there's an importance around it. Then the second is an acknowledgement on why we don't do it. And one reason we don't do it is there's a saying, I think it was Steinbeck who said that we don't really want advice. We want corroboration. A lot of times when we call somebody up, we just want to be told that we're on the right track, that we're doing things right, that we're smart. And Good advice, advice seekers turn that on their head. And what they really do, they're not looking for cooperation. They're truly looking for ways to fast forward to the right answer. And what's great about seeking and taking advice and building a, a set of advisors or mentors around you is you change both 
the velocity at which you're able to make decisions and the accuracy at which those decisions are made correctly. So if I'm faced with a, a decision where I'm a phone call away from getting the answer and I can do it in 13 minutes or I can take 13 days of kind of boiling the ocean and if I call the person, I've got an 80% chance of getting the right answer. And if I do it on my own, I've got a 50-50 chance. Those two approaches are not even comparable. So that kind of leaves you with the chapter that I wrote on how you go and seek good advisors and mentors. Sometimes people just chase resumes and they want somebody with the fanciest resume. That's not necessarily your best advisor. And then a specific technique on how you solicit advice. So just by way of example, a student might call me up and they say, I, you know, Professor Dodson, I'd like to ask you a question. I need, uh, um, and then they proceed to give me all of the background and they're telling the story. We only have 20 minutes, let's say, and we get to 16 minutes into it. And I still don't know what the question is. So I've been hearing all this background information. I haven't been able to say, you know what, I, I don't need to know that, or that's not important because I don't even know what the question is yet. So I say, step one, tell the person what you're what you want from them. Do you want advice? Do you want permission? So be very clear with that. Second is tell them what it is that the problem that you're trying to solve or the opportunity you're trying to take advantage of. The problem you're trying to solve or the opportunity you're trying to take advantage of. Then with a little bit of notes in your hand, give them the background information that represents the least amount of data that they're going to need in order to help you, not the other way around. Because as long as you're talking, they can't be giving you advice and counsel. And then you give them what your proposed solution is only as a starting point and also to, to push your own thinking and improve your own pattern recognition. And then you're quiet and you listen and you don't interrupt the person when they're giving advice and you don't follow up each sentence with your own story. So then what happens is, is that you say, JP, um, I, I need your advice on something. This is the problem I'm trying to solve. I hit about three or four minutes. I give you the essential information. You're free to ask clarifying questions if I need to fill in any holes. And now I've got 14 minutes to just sit back and listen to your advice and counsel. But if you don't follow that formula, you may have the right advisor. You may know that you need to get, seek and take advice, but you've done it. You, your tactics were ineffective. That is a great framework for asking and getting feedback and advice. But David, this obviously podcast is the future of HR. We focus on how we can inspire and develop the next generation of HR leaders. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what should HR leaders be doing to improve the quality of leaders in their company? That really is the challenge, right, for HR. I think you spend time in your career with HR leaders, and I've certainly spent a lot of time with HR leaders. And I sense a common thread, which is a frustration that they're not able to get the organization to do certain things that they know well will improve the quality of the organization. And so, you know, the, the biggest thing is to identify what it is, where you want to transform the organization, get the buy-in of whoever you need, you know, the CEO, and then take it in bite-sized pieces. So when we wanted to transform an organization that I'd co-founded with somebody else and Going, this was actually goes back to the story, JP, that I was telling earlier about the, about buying all the hiring books. We said for the next six months, we're going to focus on being better at hiring. And that was a product of a lot of conversations about where we should spend our time and what should the priorities be. But we put everything else to the side and we said, 
this is what we're going to focus in on. And then we institutionalized it. And it's very hard to institutionalize a lot of these practices because managers tend to kind of want to do their own thing. But the best organizations don't operate that way. I mean, Coca-Cola, Apple Computer, Microsoft, they, they, don't, they don't say, well, you're a good manager. I don't want to micromanage you. You just hire any way you want or you just run your meetings any way you want. I mean, that's not how Jeff Bezos built Amazon. He said, this is how we're going to run meetings. And so there has to be a recognition and a willingness that there is not one best way to ask an interviewing question. But it's important that everybody standardizes around one of those ways. There's not one perfect way to run a meeting. Maybe there's a dozen ways, but there's a hundred bad ways to do it. So we're going to pick one of these dozen ways and we're going to harmonize it across the organization. Now, if you and I, if you and I are both VPs of an organization, JP, and you run your meetings one way and I run my meetings another, we're actually not building any institutional knowledge for the people that work for us that are reporting up because then when they become a vice president, let's say you and I are both vice presidents of an organization, when they become vice presidents, they learn, your folks learn the JP way and my folks learn the Dave Dodson way. And then when they get promoted, you're creating more different ways to run meetings. Whereas if JP runs his meeting a certain way and I run my meetings a certain way, now you're institutionalizing a process across an organization. Yes, exactly. And you think about companies that have really strong cultures that have been successful it is some of these behaviors that people point to, right? Whether it's meetings for Amazon, their bar raisers and how they do selection. These are important processes that signify this is how we do things. This is our culture. And in a lot of ways, makes them stand out and more successful. So that's great advice for HR leaders. David, my last question for you, and it's a question I ask all guests, and I know you're not an HR leader, but you obviously have done a lot that would be around human capital and HR. And so what is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Well, I want to take issue with one thing you said, is that I'm not an HR leader. And I know, I know why you said it, it but I'm going to use that to make a point, is that every manager needs to understand that they are an HR leader. And that is the key skill that they bring every single day which is HR skills and HR practices so they can build a team. So I'm only kind of using, using the phrase that used as an excuse to make a point that I would love every CEO, every manager to think of themselves as an HR leader. And that would be the phrase that I would use or that I would describe. You are an HR leader. You're not a CEO. You're not a VP of sales. You're not a VP of technology. You're not the manufacturing warehouse manager. You are an HR manager or an HR leader. Build a team. David, thank you for that instant performance feedback. <laughs> it was excellent. It's an awesome, awesome opportunity. And we really wish every leader thought of themselves that way, that we are in the people business. We get results through people. That's how we deliver. David Dotson, thank you so much for being in the future of HR. The books, the manager's handbook. We're excited to see it and hope everyone picks it up. Great. I enjoyed it. Thanks, JP. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to David for sharing his research and pragmatic tips on how to take your leadership to the next level. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. 
We'll be back next week with Tammy Rosen, Chief People Officer at Pagaya, a recognized thought leader, influencer, and senior HR executive. Tammy has spent her career transforming the impact of HR as a senior executive for some of the world's most recognized companies, including Goldman Sachs, Apple, Luminar Technologies, just to name a few. Her forward-thinking approach positions HR as a catalyst for transformative change. And wait till you hear why she thinks performance management is dead. You will not want to miss this one. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.